invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. If we think carefully, we could say that struggle is good because struggle is something that keeps us close to God. One of the great dangers of settling in and being on the other side of struggle is that we can quickly forget the things that God has done for us. And when we forget the works of God, then we are only one short step away from forgetting God and abandoning God. Israel had been away from the land of promise for 430 years. And God is preparing to bring them back to that place. But He knows that if they do not perpetually remember Him and what He has done for them, then they will abandon Him. That is, future generations will abandon Him. So in preparation for this time in which they will be in this land of promise, God establishes a few patterns that will help Israel remember. He establishes a memorial, as we'll see in chapter 13, and also a consecration, a required consecration, a setting apart of the firstborn to Him. So if we're going to follow God like Israel was to follow God, then we must not forget His works. Let me read our text this morning, beginning in chapter 13 with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out from Egypt from the house of slavery. For by a powerful hand the Lord brought you out from this place, and nothing leavened shall be eaten. On this day in the month of Abib you are about to go forth. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite, which He swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, that you shall observe this rite in this month. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten throughout the seven days, and nothing leavened shall be seen among you. Nor shall any leaven be seen among you in all your borders." You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Therefore you shall keep this ordinance at its appointed time from year to year. Now when the Lord brings you to the land of the Canaanite, as He swore to you and to your fathers, and gives it to you, you shall devote to the Lord the first offspring of every womb and the first offspring of every beast that you own. The males belong to the Lord. But every first offspring of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. But if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And every firstborn of man among your sons, your sons shall redeem. And it shall be when your sons ask you in time to come, saying, What is this? Then you shall say to him, With a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. It came about when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go that the Lord killed every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn 
of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord the males, the first offspring of every womb. But every firstborn of my sons I redeem. So it shall serve as a sign on your hand and as phylacteries on your forehead, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you brought us out of Egypt. Now when Pharaoh had let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, even though it was near. For God said, the people might change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Hence, God led the people around the way of the wilderness to the Red Sea, and the sons of Israel went up in martial array from the land of Egypt. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones from here with you. Then they set out from Sukkoth and camped in Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. God is about to lead Israel to a place where they will be free from the oppression of Egypt. And if they are going to follow God, then they must not forget His works. Because as soon as they forget His works, they start questioning Him. They start, uh, they, they, they start doubting Him. And so if we are going to follow God, we must not forget His works. So this passage, I think, can be hopefully broken down into two main points. First, we must not forget God's works. We must not forget God's works. Verses 1-16. through 16. In verses 1 and 2, we have the consecration of the, the firstborn. We're going to get that, to that in a, in a minute. But first, we want to look in verses 3 through 10 at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. If we are not to forget God's works, then there should be memorials that we have to be, be reminded of what God has done for us. And God has designed this specific memorial, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for the time in which they arrive in the Promised Land. Look at verse 5. It shall be when the Lord brings you to the land, and then the end of the verse, that you shall observe the rite, this rite in the month. So, this first month of the year, which is called Abib here in our text, but was later called Nisan, and now is, that's how it's referred in the Jewish calendar, this, this first month was supposed to be a month that reminded them of what God had done back in Egypt. How He had brought them out of Egypt. And how they had to, to take this and eat this bread in a hurry. They were to eat no unleavened bread during this specific, specific week of the year. It was from the 14th of the first month all the way to the 21st. They were to eat no unleavened bread. Neither were they to have any bread in, or yeast, I should say, any yeast in their house for that entire week. And this was to remind them. Notice the purpose in verse 8. It was to be a reminder to them, but also to their children. Verse 8, You shall tell your son on that day, saying, It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Kids are naturally inquisitive. They want to know why things are the way that they are. And so, God gives a clear answer for the parents. When you're not eating unleavened bread for this specific period of time, then you can tell them why. It's because of what God did for us back in Egypt. It's, it's not just for the, 
current generation, but also for future generations. And if we think carefully about the chronology of what's going on, we will remember that the generation to whom Moses, God, is now speaking will die, right? They're not going to make it to the promised land besides Joshua and Caleb. And so this generation needs to pass this on to the next generation so that they can memorialize this event. And we know from our own experience that if we do not memorialize an event, we will quickly forget the significance of the event. And we may even forget the event itself. My children were not old enough to remember 9-11. Jonathan was one. And if we don't tell that story of what happened on that day, if we don't treat that day on the calendar with sobriety, it won't be long before that day is forgotten by the next generation or the generation after that. And so we do this in our own culture. We memorialize days to remind ourselves about what has happened. We just celebrated D-Day this past week. Remind us of what happened there at Normandy. It is critically important that we teach our children these things or we and they are liable to forget them. Look at verse 9. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. Just have this constant refrain, God brought you out of Egypt. And, And if you look throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see it again and again. God brought Israel out of Egypt. They were not to forget this. Here he says it should be a sign on your hand and on your forehead. It should be a constant reminder to you. The Jews took this literally. And they actually put, like in verse 16, it talks about phylacteries there. And if you know anything about Jewish culture and Jewish religion, they still use these today. They have bands that go around their arms that that contain passages of Scripture so they can be constantly reminded about some of these Scriptures. And then if you've seen these things that kind of look like a miner's cap, it's it's a square thing actually, but it's a phylactery that they put on their head. And this is taken from this literal thing here in Exodus 13 and also I think uh, harkens back to uh, Deuteronomy 6 where it should be a sign on your head and, and on your hand so that that, um, that it's a constant reminder. They took it literally. But I don't think this command was meant to be taken literally. And I think we can see that here from verse 13. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 9. Verse 9. And it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. Hey, I don't see any Jews walking around with Scriptures hanging out of their mouths. So they don't take that part of it literally. They just take the other parts Literally, And so I would suggest to you based on that and on Deuteronomy 6 where there's similar language when it's talking about how you need to train up your children. Okay, The, the Lord our God is one. He is, he is the, the Lord of Israel. This shall be a sign for them. And you need to have this on the doorposts uh, and, and on, on, on uh, the mantles. You need to, to have this all over. You need to talk about it when you get up, when you uh, walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. And the point was not that we need to have uh, clear signs, although I don't think there's a problem with having signs of Scripture in your, in your house. But that wasn't the, the literal point that, that God was trying to make there. His point was that it needed to be constantly at the forefront of their mind. They constantly needed to be teaching and reminding their kids 
about who God was so that it was, not literally, but figuratively, on the front of their head. They're constantly thinking, God brought our people out of Egypt. And so I, I don't take this literally, although the Jews would. The point of remembering, that is, the Jews today and Judaism, the point of remembering was not so that they would have a memory to hang their hat on, but so that they could think back to the great works of God and the covenant that He had made so that they would know that God is not only a powerful God, as it says here in verse 9, that with a powerful hand He brought them out, but also that He is a covenant-keeping God. He's not a God who's just going to leave you alone. Oh, sorry, you're, you're left in Egypt? I'm sorry about that. But He's a God who's going to follow through on His promises. God's people need to be reminded of that, that God is powerful and that He keeps His covenant. So, the first way that God helps them to remember what He has done for them is providing memorial for them so that every year they would have this week of unleavened bread, this feast of unleavened bread. The second way that He reminds them uh, so that they will not forget as He has them, He instructs them to consecrate the firstborn. So turn back to verse 1, or or look back up to verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast. It belongs to me. And there's the key phrase at the end. The reason why... Every Jew was supposed to consecrate, set apart their firstborn of man and beast was because they all belonged to God. God demanded that this would happen. It was not so that these people, these firstborn sons, were not to be used for temple service necessarily. Although, you remember in 1 Samuel 1, you have uh, Samuel being consecrated in that way. But, but the point was that they were to be set apart so that they would be reminded, the people would be reminded that that child, their first and best, belongs to God. Okay, so those of you who are the oldest, you're thinking, yes, amen, first and best. Okay, but that's, that's the way it was viewed in the ancient Near East. The first child received a double inheritance. Right? So... So I've said this before, but if there were two children, instead of just receiving half and half, he would receive the first child received two thirds, and the second child would receive a third, because he gets a double portion of an inheritance. It's as if he's two, and so God's saying, "I want you to consecrate that one who's most important to you. I want you to set him apart for my purposes. That is, that he belongs to me." Now, what we should learn from this is not that the second child was unimportant. It was not that the the rest of the children God didn't care about and He didn't own them. No, the point is, because I own your first and best, I own them all. They all belong to Me. And God would often do this. For example, when Israel does finally get to Canaan, in the book of Joshua, in chapter 6, the very first battle that they fight is the battle of what? Jericho, right? And God said, for this first battle, all the spoils belong to Me. They all belong to Me. Now, the rest of the battles after that one, you can have. Okay? But the point was, when I win this first battle, I want to show you that it belongs to Me and all of them belong to Me. Now, we know in Joshua chapter 7 that Achan disobeyed and that's why he was and his family were killed because they hid that money 
But God was making a point that they all belong to me. And we, we do the same thing. We, we think about this, I hope, in our own giving. That God doesn't demand or, or expect or accept our leftovers. But He demands and deserves our first and best. That's why we, when, when, when I speak of giving, I speak of giving out of what you have, out of the top, out of the first part of what you give. Not, okay, well, i got all these other bills, and then i got a little bit left over, and now I can give that to God. But no, I, all of my money belongs to God. I'm going to give to God no matter what, and then all these other things are going to fall into place. Matthew 6. Seek God's kingdom first, and all these other things will be added to you. See, we recognize God's ownership of all that we have. And so we are happy to give Him the first and the best. And that's what Israel does with their children and with their animals. Now, the, the way that this happens and why this happens is shown for us in verses 11 through 16. So here are the basic rules for consecration in verses 11 through 13. That when they are to come into the land of Canaan that God had promised them, they are supposed to start doing this. But in addition to the firstborn male, verses 12 and 13, they were supposed to consecrate the firstborn of every livestock as well. Again, to show that God owns them. Now, why did they do this? Well, the reason is because God wanted to show them that the exodus, God's delivering of them from Egypt, was connected to His ownership of them. That Because I effectively bought you out of slavery to Egypt, I own you. God owns them. And so, the consecration of their lives, they deserve, or, or the, God demands, God deserves their whole lives. And this would be a teaching lesson for their children. Again, in uh, verse verse 16, it shall serve as a sign on your hand and, a and as phylacteries on your forehead. For with a powerful hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Verse 14 explains it more clearly. That's the one I was looking for. And it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? Why am I, as the firstborn, being consecrated? What's the point of that? Then That's when you should tell them, With a powerful hand the Lord has brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. And then go on to tell the rest of the story about how Pharaoh was humiliated before uh, Israel by God's powerful hands. See, God's works must be remembered. And God is working hard to make sure that He is remembered, and He does it by setting up a memorial for the people and requiring consecration of them. And when, uh, when we've when we remember God, when we don't forget Him, then we are more willing to follow God. And that's what He's going to do here in verses 17 through 22. Now we start to see that we must follow God. And this starts to lead us into the, the place in which God's going to direct them into the wilderness to the promised land. So here we have in verses 17 through 22, we must follow God. We must not forget His works. We must follow God. The greatest oppression in Israel's history was finally over. Egypt was no longer their master. And the way that God rescued them must certainly not be forgotten. 
Israel may have thought that because of this, the greatest struggle that they've ever faced is over, that maybe now we're not going to have any struggles. Now we're going to just live a life of ease. And it's true that since God is all-powerful and He is able to defeat the greatest enemy, then certainly He can overcome any of the smaller trials. We should, we should recognize that. But God was not bringing them to the promised land to give them a life of ease. And I would suggest the same to you, that God did not save you in order to give you a life of ease necessarily. It's not as if God has so many gifts to give, but you know, He just needs someone to give them to. God entered into a relationship with them for a purpose, and it was so that they would learn how to depend on Him. And, and that would become clear as they would travel in the wilderness, not for a few weeks, but actually for 40 years. And so for Israel, this is only the beginning of what God was doing. And they would need to learn how to depend on Him, how to trust Him, especially since they didn't know how this was going to all turn out, especially since they only knew what was in front of them, which as we'll see here is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And you know, that's how God works with us. And He doesn't reveal every part of our future. He doesn't tell us how our life is ultimately going to turn out and when we will die. He gives us commands and makes promises and then He leads us in the dark a little bit, doesn't He? We don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And so we have to trust Him. We trust Him for the next step in front of us. Here in verses 17 to 22, Moses explains to his readers and uh, he explains to them why Israel took such a long and indirect route to get to the promised land. This trip from Egypt to Canaan should have only taken several weeks at most. And instead it took 40 years. And as Dr. Ola once said, it was not because the men were too proud to stop and ask for directions. That was not the reason. Okay? There are several reasons for this long and irregular route. First, it was because the danger of war uh, was imminent. The danger of war was imminent. Verses 17 and 18. If a traveler was going from Egypt up into Canaan, the most natural way would be, right? We'd think the, clo- the shortest point between... The shortest distance between two points is a direct line. So you just head that way, head, head northeast. But instead, they actually head southeast. They head down toward the Red Sea. And, and the reason for that is they would have headed northeast. They would have run into all these Egyptian for- fortresses and eventually the Philistines. You know what happens when you have two million people 600,000 of which are old enough to be in the military but not equipped for battle when they come up to a place where they have to fight then this is what God says at the end of verse 17 the people might change their minds when they see their war and want to return to Egypt the problem with that route was that there was too much opposition and God knew that And so he put them on a longer, more irregular route. And if we think ahead to 
this great miracle that's going to happen at the Red Sea in chapter 14, what happens when Israel has their back to the Red Sea? Nowhere to go. And they have the Egyptians approaching. approaching. What do they say to Moses? They say, Moses, get us out of here. What were you thinking? Why did we not die in Egypt? We, those graves are much better than having to die out here. At least we could have served the Egyptians. And so God knew exactly how far to push Israel. Now, we might think, uh, based on the text here in verse 18, that they actually were equipped for battle. Some of your texts might, might suggest that at the end of verse 18. And the sons of Israel went up in martial array. So it kind of sounds like they're ready for battle. But, the, but literally, it reads, they were organized by fifties. That was the way that militaries would organize themselves back then. They would or- organize in groups of fifties and then hundreds and then thousands. Okay. The point is, is that they were walking in a battle-like formation, but not equipped for battle. They were farmers. They were used to being out in the fields. They were not equipped for battle. The, the Egyptians made sure that they were not. So the first reason that they had this irregular route was because of the danger of war for an untested army. The second reason is for the transformation of or transportation, excuse me, transportation of Joseph's bones in verse 19. Joseph made it clear before he died that he wanted to be buried in the land of Canaan. And so as part of the way that God was going to show that he was faithful to Joseph and to his descendants, they would carry Joseph's bones all the way to Canaan. And in Joshua chapter 24, after they settle in the land, it's, it's, a, it's a moving uh, story of how they remembered that they had Joseph's bones and they were going to bury him there. The third reason is that the Lord led them. Verses 20 through 22, the Lord led them that way. And we know, because we know the rest of the story, that Israel actually sinned against God. When, God, when Moses had sent the spies into the land of Canaan, they saw they're too powerful for us. There's no way we can defeat them. Uh, you had the ten spies that reported that way. And the rest of Israel agreed with them, save these two spies, Joshua and Caleb, who said, no, we can handle them because we have God on our side. As a result of that, they were not able to enter the land of promise. So we know that they, they basically had to die out in the wilderness. And there are lots of different ways they died from plagues and from all sorts of consequences from their own sin. But eventually they all died and their children were the ones who inherited the land. So the Lord led them. And the way that He leads them throughout this wilderness time is found for us in verses 20 through 22. Verse 21 says that the Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way and in a pillar of fire by night give them light, that they may travel by day and by night. And He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So here, here's just a very simple way to explain why they took such a long time to get to Israel. It's because God led them that way. He had that pillar of cloud by day and they constantly knew that God was leading them. But they only knew where they were going basically a few steps in front of them because that's where the pillar was. And it was a reminder to Israel uh, that God was leading them. That all day, every day, 24 hours a day, God was leading them. The fourth reason is actually we're, we're going to see next week in chapter 14, verses 1-4. through 4. So We won't look at that 
uh, too closely, but the point is that that there is going to one of the reasons God led them instead of up northeast towards the Philistines, He led them southeast towards the Red Sea because He wanted to, God wanted to humiliate the Egyptians. He wanted the Egyptians to think they're kind of wandering around here. They don't know what they're doing out here in the wilderness. And so let's go after them. We can take them. We'll bring them back and they'll serve us again. And God was using that to humiliate them. And He would. Uh, uh, we know what happens there that that uh, God brings them into the Red Sea and they're destroyed there. Let me leave you with a principle uh, from our text and a challenge. Okay, First, a principle... God's unknown will is best. Okay, We could say God's will is best, period. But even God's unknown will is best. I find it interesting that God doesn't lay out for us the course of our life that He wants us to go. He doesn't tell us every single event that's going to take place and how we ought to go down various paths. And so we are left to be like a person in the dark with a lantern who can only see a few steps in front of us. We're left to trust that, God, You know what is best. You've told me to head in this direction to follow this pillar like Israel would. I don't know what's beyond this pillar. I don't know where we're going, but I know that You're leading me. And many times, I hope you recognize, God takes you on difficult routes in life because He knows that if you went on a different route, that you would have some challenges that might cause you to give up and turn away from God and from the Christian faith. So, I don't know what kind of difficult path that you're on right now, but don't begrudge God for that path. As a Christian, you can be sure that God uses your difficult path to bring you to final redemption. Now, that doesn't mean that all of your difficulties in life are because God is keeping you from giving up. If you were going a different way, maybe if you're rich and famous, then you would abandon God. Maybe you wouldn't. But, but it is a possibility of how God is using your difficulty. That He is, he is leading you on a longer and more indirect route to sanctification because He knows that if you went another way, you might give up. Untested. God's Unknown, even God's unknown will is best. And secondly, a challenge. Because God owns us, He demands our whole life. Because God owns us, He demands our whole life. It's similar to Israel. He owned them because He had purchased them out of slavery. He had purchased them with the wonderful works that He did by destroying them through these plagues and then through the Red Sea. And because of that, He owned them. We might like to compartmentalize our life so that we think that God does own us, but He only owns part of us. Maybe He owns one day of the week. He owns our Sunday. And so I'm going to be a good person and I'm going to go to church, but for the rest of the week, He doesn't own me. Or maybe we give part of our money to God. Only God, God only owns a portion of my money, whatever portion that we determine that it is. And so the rest of my money I can use however I want. 
regardless of what God might want me to use it for. Or maybe when we speak about God in the Bible, we speak with reverence. But then, how we use our speech the rest of the time, when we're not talking about God or the Bible or Christians, we can just do whatever we want. But the truth is, is that God, like the whole families of Israel and all the flocks of Israel, they all belong to God. And that's the same thing with our lives. Our whole life belongs to God. And the reason that it belongs to God and the reason that He demands it all is because He owns us. Do you believe that God owns you all? All of you? Do you believe that God owns every part of you? And do you believe that God demands all of your life? Not only does God own us, but He doubly owns us. Similar to Israel. Imagine a 10-year-old child who's taken away from his parents because he falsely claimed that his parents were abusing him. And after spending some years in foster homes and realizing how wrong he was, the child tries to get make it right. But it's not as if he can just leave those homes, or leave that home and come back to his parents. It's not that simple. In order for his parents to get the child back, they would have to go through years of court proceedings and spend likely hundreds of thousands of dollars in order to get this child back. I realize this illustration does not perfectly correlate with how much we owe to God, but it does illustrate in some way that God doubly owns us. That we were created by Him and yet we rebelled against Him. And we spend our lives in darkness and slavery to our Master. And here's where the illustration breaks down. We didn't want to come back to God. We enjoyed our slavery. But God bought us out of it anyway. God bought us out of our slavery to sin with the most precious thing that He possessed. And that is His beloved Son who would shed His blood so that you, can, you and I could be part of His family. And so God doubly owns us. He created us and He bought us out of slavery to sin with the blood of Christ. And so since God doubly owns us, does He not have the right, does He not deserve our full devotion? It is part of who we are. We belong to God. That's what... That's what uh, God was saying here in verse 2, Sanctify them because they belong to Me. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Because God owns us, He demands our whole life. Similar to what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man is in Christ, he is a new what? He's a new creature, a creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. God has made you into a new creature. He demands all of your life. Ephesians 2.10, Paul tells us that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. That because God saved us by grace through faith, He made us so that we would do something to do good works. He demands it. Paul tells probably most clearly in Romans 12, 1 and 2 that as Christians, we ought to offer our bodies as living 
sacrifices which are holy and acceptable to God because it's our reasonable service of worship, our, the, most, uh, the, the, the least we could do because of all that God has done for us in chapters 1-11. through 11, His mercy that was shown to us. How could we not give our whole lives to Him because of what He has done? Let me show you here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 how Christ gave His life to free us from the bondage of sin. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves, speaking to Christians, also with the same purpose, because He has suffered in the flesh, has ceased from sin. He who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. So, because Christ has armed us for suffering, because He has suffered, He's armed us for suffering, and we now live not for the lust of men, but we live for the will of God, for God's desires. That's how will is being used there. We now live for the desires of God. God doubly owns us. And because He does, He demands our whole life. God owns you. Does He deserve anything less than your full devotion to Him? We sing a song called When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the last verse of that says, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would be a present far too small. Love so amazing. The love that's been shown to us is so amazing and so divine. It demands my soul, my life, and help me, my all. Demands every part of me. And so I can't compartmentalize my life and say, God, Sunday is yours. Or God, when I talk about you, it's yours. But the rest of my speech is mine. Or my money. I'll give some of it to you. The rest of it, I'll just use however I want. God demands it all. He demands that our resources, everything that we are and everything that we do are done for Him because we are fully devoted to God. We ought to be. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the reminder of of Your great works and what You have done for us. We don't want to forget how merciful You have been to us. So, Lord, we pray that we would memorialize some of the great events that You've done in our lives and, and, and that we also would consecrate ourselves to You fully. That we would hold nothing back. I pray that if there is someone here today that has not taken up their cross and followed Christ, they would recognize the need to do that today. Lord, we will have no desire to follow You if, if Christ has first not gotten a hold of our hearts. So I pray that You would change hearts today, draw people to Yourself, and draw each of us closer to You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.